Warning. This podcast may contain mature language, so if you're not comfortable with that, earmuffs. And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Um, hey, thanks for all of the great emails that you've sent me at themomentbk at gmail.com. Uh, and thanks for uh, not sending me any movie ideas uh, or any scripts. As my guest today, Michael Rathport, will tell you, it is the bane, it is the one thing, the one interaction we really don't want to have. But you never know when you might find that diamond in the rough. Oh, that's awesome. So listen, guys, send Rathport. <laughs> anything, I'll take it. I'll take it. I might not send, read it, but I'll, 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 I'll take it. So anything send, that you think is great for Brian, send to Michael Rappaport at michaelrappaport.com or wherever. I'm easy to find. That's the best thing ever. How many do you get? Dude, I mean, come on. You can't. You see, here's the thing. You, because you've been famous for a long time, yeah. are used to just like, oh, yeah, give me it. And then it doesn't matter. But like... You know, I could get someone could send me a thing about, let's say, hey, give me something about, um, hey, my idea is this, you know, a bank robber in Chicago. And then and that's I, the idea. I write a movie about oh. uh, a liquor store thief in um, Buenos Aires. Right. And now it's just I, one scene. Then it would. Then you get sued. Yeah, I stole the guy's idea. That's fine. All I do is steal other people's ideas. So send them all to me. I, I you'll get no credit if you have something good. I'll steal it and and you know and and, and I'll blame Brian because I say he told me to do this. Who'd you get the persona from? Where'd you steal the whole persona from? No, the persona Remember is the mine. Ki- the persona is mine. And my father mostly, but my father's like, I took it to another level. I'm like my father on steroids. But, but if I, you saw us together, you'd get the whole thing. And this is from your pop. It's not. Uh, I guess it's not thievery. No, not thievery. He's probably comfortable with proud. Yeah, of course, of course. How like how long into a conversation with somebody he doesn't know does he get before saying, um, "My son, Michael Rapaport, the actor." Shit, I think he'll. You know, at this point, my father's eighty-one, so he'll. If he's talking to a lady, he'll throw it out there. Like, have you ever seen this? You ever seen that? That's my son. You know, like just to get in there. He'll he, just lead out with it. He'll start. He'll sometimes he'll say he's Michael Rapaport. <laughs> that's you know, perfect. So, yeah. No, that's fine. Uh, though. Yeah, I guess believable in a way. You could see him pulling it off. You could be like, well, my first movies were a really long time ago. Yeah. Zebrahead was like in... I, I've, aged, I've aged terribly. Yeah. Zebrahead was 91. It's three. me. Yeah, it's me. I'm Michael Rappaport. I'm, 80, I'm 81. I was just... I looked really good back then. So, Michael Rappaport is my guest, and um, I think we're going to be able to fill the hour with conversation. Let's do it. I feel um, we have a great kinship, you and I. Yeah. We have many mutual friends. Yes. Uh, some have gone on to their... Uh, some have passed on from this world, but... Um, you know, we are bonded by this Knicks thing. Yes. And your movie, which premieres tonight um, on ESPN, which yes. is when, when the Garden was eaten, yep. is uh, about the great Nick teams of the late 60s, early 70s. Yep. How long did it take you to make the film? It took about 14 months, 13 months. And I mean, uh, you know, it was pretty, we started fast and, and, you know, the process with making a documentary is so unpredictable. Um, but it was, it was, it was fast and furious. And the, the good thing was, is that everybody said yes to being in it. Like before we, before we get the okay from ESPN, they said, if you get Bradley Willis and, you know, the main cast of characters were good. And they said yes. And we just started, you know, the movie is st- uh, really, really strong. And I'll say, um, I'm insanely jealous that you got to make the movie. Oh, man. You know, I made a 30 for 30, yeah. and I love doing it. Uh, Dave and I, my partner and I made it. And uh, it was an incredible experience about something that was very close to my heart. Connors at the 91 U.S. Open. Yep. But the Knicks defined my childhood. 
Wow. As I know they defined. George, how old, how, how old were you I, when the, the first championship? I was born in, in March of 1970. They actually, you know, quite, it hasn't been revealed that much, but a lot of them give my birth credit. For them winning that first championship, it wasn't Willis Reed. It was this this young blonde headed baby that was born in New York Hospital, Michael Rappaport. Because oh, Jerry Lucas knows when you were born at the time. He knows uh, who the nurse was. He knows it all. He can't. He can't. You know. He knows the whole deal. Yeah. The, so uh, so uh, I was yes. I was disappointed you didn't say the Lucas Lorraine memory <laughs> method. But you you did talk about the memories. Yes, yes, yes. The, the, which was fascinating. I mean, Jerry Jerry Lucas. Just to, well, let's stay where. So I was I was born in 1970, and then they won the second championship at 73. So I never saw them play, but my father was a, 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 a he still is a big basketball fan, and he would talk about. Bradley's movement away from the ball, and he would always move around. He would talk about the toughness of Dave DeBuscher. He would talk about the flair of Earl Monroe and Earl the Pearl Monroe, and and um, and that's how I kind of heard about them before I even saw them. This thing about Nick's fathers and sons, and I just want to say that uh, you know this is going to be a Nick heavy podcast, yeah. today, even though uh, because you know my first memory is my dad taking me to a Nick game when I was five years old, the when they lost to Baltimore. Uh, with Pearl oh. against him in the seventh game the year before. Yeah, that's cool. The year before the it was 72, right? Yeah, uh, No, it was uh, no, the seventh game. Uh, in 60- I was born in 66, so it was 70. Wow. Uh, and uh, the 69, I guess the, the 71 yes. season. Yeah, yeah. Right before Pearl came over. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the, I remember my father pointing to, to Pearl and Dancing Harry and saying, um, that guy is magical. Uh. And... Pearl became my favorite player in the world, my favorite athlete. And when he came to the Knicks that next year, you know, the first year he came, they didn't win and they won it the next yeah. year. You know, my room was covered with Knicks posters. They became this, really the central thing that I cared about, That I, the thing I talked to my dad about every day. That's so cool. So for me, when and I, I, I would go to the Garden, and I've had my own season ticket since like the minute I got out of college. Uh, my, a buddy and I got them. Uh-huh. I still have them. That's cool. So I, you, I am the perfect audience for your movie. And oh, I, and cool, it killed man. me, man, because what do you think it, it was? What, what is it? it was a love letter to your dad, clearly, yeah. in a certain way. And I get the father-son Knicks thing yeah. in New York. Why do you think those teams have such a strong hold on all of us <sighs> still and on New Yorkers still? I think the thing that we responded to and that we continue to reference about that team was, number one, it was the first time. It was it was like that seventy championship was our first championship. It was a brand new Madison Square Garden, and the one thing that I really learned, or one of the things I learned from from making this film, was that how how small the NBA was, and 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 it was literally they got kicked out of the garden when the circus came, and they played at the at the at the Armory Building. The fucking New York Knicks. Yeah, I know. Because the, the, the Ringland brothers come in and they, they couldn't give away tickets. So when that team was put together, you know, with the pieces and the personalities and the Red Holzman of it all, who's a New York Jew, you know, and he's, he's you know, Red Holzman, you know, we talk about Parcells and we talk about Joe Torre. Red Holzman. 670. Yeah. And, 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 and he just didn't have that panage that Parcells has. He wasn't a great interview, but, you know, the, the the Knicks revered him, and he kept this group of egos. There's a lot of egos. You have Willis Reed, who, who was probably the easiest to deal with, Bradley, with all the hype and craziness, Cassie Russell, who has a big ego, 
Walt Frazier, person, yeah. Dick I mean, Barnett, who's said, a fucking character. Course, you said a lot. You said a lot. Um, you know, let's unpack some of the things you said because uh, I like unpacking. Well, let's do that. Okay. Because you know those shots that you have in in the movie of what the early where the Knicks used to play, yeah. the armory and the old garden, um, and and the idea that the college basketball mattered more than professional basketball. Yeah. But then even what you said about the New York Jew thing, that explains a certain part of it, but that team cut across every kind of racial divide that there could be. Yeah. Uh, when I wear like a, a Knicks jacket, I have this Knicks jacket that has like the 73 and 70 things on it. I mean... You know, you just get stopped walking down right. the street. People just want to have a conversation about right. about the. Do you think it's the fact that the, 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 those guys were willing to sort of put all that stuff aside for the sake of the city and and for winning? I, I do. I, I mean, they played basketball the way it was supposed to be played. It was like street ball. There wasn't a lot of plays. It was basic pick-and-roll basketball. It was see the man, you know, get back on defense. There wasn't anything fancy, and they did it. I mean, the the crowd, this is a basketball city. You know, if you walk outside, it this, is. if you walk outside where I we are now, yep. 20 blocks in any direction, in any borough, you're going to see a basketball court. You ain't going to see a, ba- a baseball court. You ain't going to see an ice skating rink. Yeah, New Yorkers, whenever somebody, t- I would know just from when, when I was a kid, like, I played basketball every day of my life. You're a basketball player. Yeah, yeah. I played until I was like 42 years old. I mean, every day. And, uh... Anytime I'd be somewhere else and someone would say they play basketball and they weren't a New Yorker, I would always think it must be kind of a joke. Yeah. Like, they don't, I mean, they don't really play basketball. Right, you judge it. You do, don't you? Absolutely. And you judge people harshly. New Yorkers judge people very harshly by how they comport themselves in the basketball court. Yep. Whether they the know, fouls they call. Yeah. Oh, the fouls that they call. When you call your own and a guy will call a, a bullshit foul, we get, I think we get angry in a different way. Really fucking angry. You know why? Because we're walking down the street all day long. We could call fouls anytime we want. I mean, walking here. I got fouled on the train. That's what I'm saying. I mean, you know, I'm getting, you know, and I don't call it. You know, I'm on the bus. I got hit by a bus. I'm like, you know, it's cool. He's like, it's nothing. That's not a foul. You only call a foul if the bus actually hits you. If it hits you and knocks you, if you get knocked down. And and if if I tripped after the hit, then I don't call the foul. Not a foul on the bus driver. He's moving. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to complain about that. So, but, so it's a different temperament. But that is true, and it's like, uh, I'm sure there's some of that in other cities, but in our city, you are constantly trying to read the floor. <laughs> you yeah. are. Like, you're looking at the, the world cracks. like a basketball player yeah. does, yeah. I think. And I, that's maybe part of it. But what, look, I, I loved, I could do this whole show on your first documentary. Oh, thank you. Um, which is about Tribe. Tribe Cold Quest, yep. And what's the documentary called? Beat Rhymes in Life. The Travels of a Tribe Cold Quest. And... Mm-hmm. Because I was thinking about it a lot watching this movie. Oh, cool. Because, you know, at one point in this movie, towards the end, Clyde says, unquestionably the best... Clyde, who doesn't brag or anything, says, unquestionably the best backcourt of all time. Yeah. Which leaves out Jordan and Pippen. Hey. I I mean, I'm down, right? Yeah. (laughs) But, do you, in a way, look at... You know, when I, I watch that movie... And it's another movie about teamwork, but it's about when the teamwork uh, can't cohese after a while. Yeah. And and when the players can't sacrifice for each other. Yeah. That's a good point. I I didn't think of it that way. I I, I knew there was was a similar similar themes in the Tribe movie that came up with the Knicks thing in terms of ego, in terms of... um, 
nostalgic feeling for myself, like the, what they meant to me. Um, but I, that correlation of the teamwork and the tribe, because the tribe teamwork fell apart. That's, yeah. a, that's true. Because the first three albums, they were in sync. The fourth album, it was like, oh, you know, they got it. They brought in another player. You know, they they had another producer. The fifth album, it was they were done before the, you know, it started. Because you would watch, you know, but I, I like that though. I, well, because you think about it, like Fife, somehow you had this guy. Uh, you know, you have Tip, who was in in many ways, you, you know, the smartest guy ever. You know, certainly one of the smartest guys ever to walk up to a microphone. Absolutely, right? and a guy who just understood music at a cellular. Yes, completely. And you had Fife, who's like Cassie Russell or something. Absolutely, absolutely. Instant offense. That's good. That's really good. He well, would love that. Fife would love that because you know he's a big sports guy. He could rap it too. He absolutely. Could call himself that and absolutely. Feel free to tell him. No, I mean, yeah, that's that's and, good. <laughs> the Cassie Russell. The Cassie Russell. Yeah, absolutely. And so you look at it. Now they didn't maybe have the coach, but you know, because Tip's role, unfortunately, was to be like the point guard and the scoring guy, <laughs> a guy and the coach. Yep. Uh, and you watch that movie, and you're rooting for them. You did this great job in both movies, you know, of uh, showing us how this all came together. So mm-hmm. I have a couple of questions. One, how? And then I want to get back to the fight dog and uh, tip thing. But as a filmmaker, yeah, how are you thinking about the narrative? Uh, when do you start thinking about the narrative, and um, how do you carry it forward? Okay, well, um, I'll talk about the the Knicks film. You know, the narrative, the, the good thing about the Knicks film, the easier thing about the Knicks film is that it was in the past. Whereas with the Tribe movie, it was it was happening while I was shooting. Well, yeah, can can these guys forgive each other? While it's happening, yeah. while I'm making the movie. Um so so that's happening. So the good the easier thing on this was that the story was done with. And 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 the story's been told. You know, it's been written about. I mean, every single one of these Knicks players literally wrote a book. The year they won the That's champion. a great moment when you show 11 books. Yeah, that's a real thing. So, you know, they all have their stories. There's been docs on it. You know, Willis Reed and, and Bill Brownlee and I think Dave DeBusher at the end of, uh, you know, uh, of, of the last millennium, uh, Sports Century, that ESPN show. I think they were all in this. So I've, I've heard about the story's been told that that, that uh, Willis Reed moment, it's on commercials now. Yes. So you, it was tough. Like, where do you start from? And, you know, we played around many different beginnings you know to the to the film and you just keep trying different things but for me you know when when you're doing a film that's specific and and I say specific cuz it's the Knicks it's it's basketball and you're doing it even for a 30 for 30 I always ask myself same with the tribe thing I ask myself how do I get people that don't know the story invested but 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 how do I do it for the Knicks fan so you don't want to spell the whole thing out it's like an equation you don't want to put too much in there but you but you but you don't want to leave out people that don't know anything you don't want it to be just for Knicks fans that lived it you don't want to talk in a shorthand with the tribe movie the same thing you don't want it to be too tribe centric because I could have did a whole movie on tribe that was tribe centric, meaning just about the samples and the music and the songs. And if you don't know who they are emotionally, who cares? No, the, of course, I, I agree with you. The tribe movie, you're able, first of all, you have more time, and, and also because of the present day story, there was so much still alive in it in a way. And the next thing, although you said it's easier in a way, it's also got to be more challenging to make it uh, to make it feel like there's something still. At stake yes. while you're watching it, right? Yeah. You know they won those two championships. You know the story. You know the ending. You know that the Willis is coming, and, uh, and it's the, how you tell it. I think is the, is the key. But the the Bradley piece of it, um, which could be it's which you could see why they each wrote a book because in a way, uh, Bradley's story is a movie. Absolutely, he was the great white hope. What was it like spending time with him? 
He was cool. I mean, uh, did he have politicians reserve or did you get him? Were you able oh, to no. get him? I was able to get him. I was able to get him. But he definitely had politicians reserve and I had to work. And, and uh, you know, I had to work, but I got him. I got him. Cur- he cursed. There, I yes, say I true. had a, a presidential candidate said shit in front of me. There's this moment when you're and I'm the, that's the thing I'm most proud of that I made Bill Bradley curse on camera. Well, because it's one thing. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank it's, you. It's one thing when you're interviewing tribe, and you know before you started that Q and Q tip were friends. Yeah. You uh, you can kind of dig in, and that camera was like um, a silent witness a lot of the time, yeah. and then you just had to kind of follow up. Yeah, but I noticed like when I was asking heroes questions on the thirty for thirty because like, yeah. you know my partner and I wrote all the questions and then right. you know you're sitting there. There's always that moment, especially when you're not a professional journalist. Like, yes. we're not. We're filmmakers, yes. you and I, right? Yeah, and we don't. We're not document. I mean, I'm, I know what you're you an mean. Actor, no, I know exactly what you mean. That mo- how did you get yourself to like ask to like really ask Cassie Russell like, well, you got trade. You know, how did you? You know, you know the good thing about this that I had working for me is. And, and I mean this in, with all due respect. The good thing that I had, and I think that it helped me, because some people are like, well, how did you make this movie? You weren't alive then. That helped me, is that I didn't, I, I wasn't, as much as I respect them, I don't revere them the same way someone who might have grown up watching them moment to moment. So Bernard would be harder for you to talk Bernard to? Bernard would be harder for me to talk to. Um, talking to Phil Jackson about the Bulls? Would be harder to t- to talk about, so yeah. you know. Do you know what I'm saying? So like like Cassie Russell, you know. So but it's still hard because and then there's also the fact that they're older men, so you want to be respectful and not cross a line. That's what I'm asking because like there's that moment you know when you ask Willis about the fight, yes. and you could see that I, I, you could just see for a second in his eyes like oh really he's going to the fight? I thought yeah. this was going to be about celebrating the yeah, team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I ha- explained to him. And I-, I explained to him. I said, the reason why I'm asking you about the fight, and the fight is, in 1963, and this was a real gem, in 1963, opening night at the Old Garden. I had never seen the footage before. Is I that love fucking that crazy or what? It's the best. It's, it's, it's like never been wrestling. seen. Yeah, it's like, it's like the Ron Artest incident. I, I mean, I, they talked about that. Cassie Russell, his first game as a Nick, he's a, a rookie, and this happens. That was his first game. And Phil Jackson said the first time I ever saw the Knicks play, he says it in the movie, they show him this film of this fight. And they were like, what the fuck is this? This is like, I thought this was a basketball team. And he beat the shit out of them. So when I talked to him about it, but the thing that came out of the fight, and Jerry Jerry West, the same thing, it was like they had a guy that wasn't going to take any shit anymore. Because the Knicks sucked. They're not sucked like they do now. They were a fucking doormat. Like, they were the bottom. Well, yeah, you know, we all think, like, oh, the Knicks have been on this decline. They, the truth is they only had this five-year blip. Yeah. When the, from really when DeBusher came to the Knicks until, you know, when Clyde was trained. Yeah. Well, they were okay up until, like, you know, Clyde was trained. Yeah, yeah. In the most just horrible cursing. You cannot, I mean, it's crazy that they traded. To him, Cleveland. Cleveland. Even he said that. Like, I, you got to send me to Cleveland? Cleveland? Of all places, and that was when Cleveland wasn't the Cleveland. It wasn't like even Cleveland now. No, and Cleveland now is nothing to brag about. But Cleveland oh. in the seventies, that was more like eighty. That was Rappaport. No, but that. I mean, because no, because now they're on a high horse because they got LeBron. So they're like, I spoke to some radio station in Cleveland. They're like talking to me. They're like sipping champagne. They got their fucking tickets to the parade. They swear they're going to win the championship. And I said, my friend, you're going to get dismantled by the Spurs again. You will make it to the championship, but you are going to get dismantled once again. Uh, heartbreaking. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, and I don't give a shit. They'll win their championship, and the whole thing will come back to, from my LeBron. Buddy, my buddy Scott Rabb, who writes for Esquire, is just like the biggest Cleveland fan. He's been forever his whole life, and this is just to- it just torches him. And I understand it as a Knicks fan. 
The Listen, pain. I do understand the pain. I want Cleveland to win. As bad as it's been for Knicks fans, we have other things. The the the, the Browns and, and I mean we live in New York. We live in New York first of all. Even if even if all our teams suck, we don't live in Cleveland. We live here. That's fine. And even if you lived like out in fucking you know like Bumblefuck Queens by the airport, you're still in New York. You're Staten Island, Toad Hill. That's fine. Great. You, you're you're not you're not in Cleveland. So things are never going to be that bad. Sorry. I'm just. But listen, you guys are going to win a championship in the next few years. So I'm not. I don't feel bad for you. But it is still Cleveland. I mean, they even took away the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. They took it out of Cleveland because people are like I'm not fucking going to Cleveland yeah, anymore. Put it in New York. I'll show up. Yeah, if you, exactly. Right. We'll I mean, just say it's in Cleveland. Live from Cleveland, uh, it'll be at the Garden of Radio you're City. A bad influence, Michael Rapport. But here's the thing. Um, so, the, Willis, the fight. So yeah. Willis oh. has this fight. Yes. And uh, the movie, which is on ESPN tonight, uh, people are listening on Tuesday. And if you're not, you can find they they do play the thirty for thirty. Yes. Over and over again, and uh, double feature with the Connors one, and this would really be a good double feature. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. This is what you want, and then when the Garden was Eden, exactly, both, exactly, um, both New York stories. But the, what it was awesome because you know Willis is considered this great sort of like gentleman now. He's like a hero, like a legend. Willis Reed came up tough. Yes. In the South, and you get that when you're watching. And and Willis Reed came up from the segregated South. And he was not a wealthy. He came from a tough background. You know, he 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 w- did farm work. I mean, he talked about watching his father come home with sweat down to his knees. And he had this hard Southern work ethic. He was just a Southern kid that came to New York. He wasn't even thinking. Of, he was just thinking about going to college to to, to get an education. He wasn't thinking about I'm going to go to New York. And 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 he, but he wasn't no joke. I mean, this is a tough, tough guy. One of the most interesting things in the documentary comes off of this is that. Uh, and, you know, you, you, you want, what's great is the documentary really shows this, uh, which is, you know, I talk a lot on this show about people following their passion regardless right. of what they see as the initial like financial reward, right? I mean, these guys, I wish that you could have had more time to go further. T- tell What were some of the jobs they had while being professional basketball players? Insurance salesmen. Uh, you know, just bi- business, business, businessmen. You know, they would get like you know little little jobs. I mean, Jerry, John Havlicek sold insurance until 1974. After they he won, he had rings while he was selling insurance during the off season. And another thing that was crazy to hear, and I knew about it. You know, they were all concerned about getting drafted. Into the into the army and and Cassie Russell Incredible while he was a sniper Nick, was a sniper didn't shoot anybody no. but he had a rifle up on at, in Chicago in '68 when the riots he's happened. a Nick he's a first round draft pick and and you know and Bill Bradley like they would leave the Knicks on the weekend go serve in the National Guard and then come back and be a, a Nick no it's true and you know the Bill Bradley wrote if if you're a sports fan listening to this and you like reading Bill Bradley's book is really worth yeah. Getting. Uh, there are a couple of books. David Halberstam's book, yep. Bill Bradley's book. They all wrote about this time yep. in, the, in the NBA. The Busher's book is good too. I never read the Busher's. It's book. good. It's good. Uh, he he. Uh, he's, I can't make that. I was going to make a Dave DeBusher drunk no, joke. No, but I'm no, not going to no, do that now. He's, Dave DeBusher. When the Garden's coming out tomorrow, come on, you can get us in trouble here. But I will just say that a couple of these books are really worth. And Har- Harvey Ireland's Harvey Ireland's which is yeah. what you were inspired by. Yeah. Now, I just want to talk about you a, a little bit. Um, what made you? decide that you wanted to you know make films and that the way you were going to start was by making documentaries that's a good question um you know i i never intended to to now i guess i could say i'm sort of a documentary filmmaker because i've done two of them and i've done two of them from scratch yeah you are one you know i always say this when when someone does something i remember when i made my first movie 
all it was was like one dot on the on the graph. If you had a graph, just a dot, it doesn't yeah. mean anything. But as soon as there's a second one, now you can make a line. Now yeah. you're moving in a direction yeah. too. Yeah. You're a doc. Of course you're a documentary. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 and I'm proud to say that. You know, but when I made the, the Tribe movie, I, I've wanted to direct a film, a feature. And I just haven't found the right thing that, that felt right. When A Tribe Called Quest broke up in 99, I think, I was at their last concert as a fan. I went there because you knew it was their last concert. They said, this is the last concert. And I said at that, at that concert to my girlfriend, somebody should do a documentary about A Tribe, a tribe Called Quest because I felt like I was watching the last concert of the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. For me, that's what they meant. I mean, yeah, you say that stuff in the movie for sure, that they, it meant that much. To it you. meant that much to me and I wasn't alone. Like, it was fucking heartbreaking. And then when they, and it is just as simple as this, when they went back on tour in 2011, I heard, even I didn't even know that they were going back on tour. I heard in the middle of the tour they were on touring, and I was like, I called them up and I was like, "Yo, I want to do a documentary." They're like, "Go ahead, come down." And it was literally like on a, on a Wednesday I made that phone call, and on a Saturday I had got two cameras and I was shooting a, a, a movie. No, you had no real prior thought that you were going to do it. I had some thought that I was going to do it, but it was like kind of like, "Yeah, I want to go learn how to play golf." But how did you prep? Like, how did you... I just got... I prepped... There was no prep. It was literally a Wednesday until a Friday. Like, the prep was go buy a camera. Now, is that typical for how you live your life? No, not at all. And not make a documentary movie. And it was it it was a, a challenge. And 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 uh, you know I thought when I was making the film it would just be sort of contrary and tribe centric. It would be just about the music and and you know just a celebration. You of mean them. at that time you didn't realize this was about friendship? No, I had no idea. Talent, none. Uh, the different kinds of intelligence none that people at all. have. I didn't know. I didn't know. Did you know that Fife was sick? I knew that Fife had diabetes. I didn't know to what extent. And and I and I had never met Fife. Up until I, I met Fife in passing at a but party you knew one. T- tip. I knew Tip, but not Tip. I didn't know him that well. Like I knew him, and we're cool, but I didn't know him that well. And I, the one thing I didn't know, and and I'm a fan. I did, had no idea of of the dynamic in the group. I mean, none. But as soon as when we were filming that first Saturday at a concert, I saw them greet each other, and we have it in the film. The way they greet each other, I was like, that was weird. You know, like you could just feel there was a, a like a tension. And, and, and this was just on camera. I'm like, oh, shit. Like, what, what was that? And then, like, being around them, you could just feel. And it was like seeing, not my idols, but mu- musically, they're, they're, they mean a lot to me. Seeing, like, this, this dysfunction that I didn't know existed. And you think it's all good because it's tribe and their music is so positive. positive. Oh, yeah, sure. It, it would be like seeing, you know, I mean, we know about it now, but it'd be like seeing Paul McCartney and, and, and John, like, you know, kind of like you see just from viewing them, you see like the tension. Well, also because the dis- the disparity between, I mean, it's always interesting when you know artists. I mean, you are an artist, you know, and it's not that artists are being. Sometimes people think artists are being disingenuous in that their work presents a different a different side of them uh-huh. than what they are. But but artists show the very the reason we artists choose to do the thing that they do. Is very often they're they're giving you the very best of what they are is that's what's right. presented their best hopes for themselves. Right, that's true. The, the the best you know their focused best most elevated self is what's on display in the work. Yeah, if they're great at it. Uh, that's good. 
How can people like so you know you can't live you up to that? The, the tip who is a great you know I, I every time I've ever interacted with him to me he's a great guy. No, he is. He's a great guy. He is. But nobody could be the guy who's the protagonist of those songs. Nobody can live up to the expectations and the expectation of this group and this sort of loving you know hippieish you know black power soulful positive music. The music is so colorful. But, it's hard to live up to it. And these are just two guys from Queens. Because They're two friends. The movie asks a great question. I relate it to the next question because the movie asks this question, and I think it asks it fairly directly, which was like, um, you know, did Tip have to sacrifice so much <laughs> of what he w- wished he could be, the French, like, in order to stay great? Because he clearly, right. like, made that, that decision of, I have to be great, and that's more important. Than, than anything else, yeah. And, and like, it, does do you think that that kind that do you think that that great artists athletes uh, have to make a very cold choice, or you think that 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 that, that, that they just think that they do? What have you noticed? Mm. Well, you know, it, it's. I think that they they, you know, I think that if you're really pure, like the one thing that even when I was 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 sort of battling with Q-tip that I respected is that he doesn't bend. I respected that even though it was driving me crazy right. and 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 it was frustrating, I respected his take on things and I respected how how tough Fife was too. They're both really tough. And and in terms of in terms of tough in terms of supporting the movie, not supporting the movie, hating me, hating each other, like those two guys I don't know what their signs are, but they're fucking stubborn, like in a good way. And I say this in respectful, like they're because they're fucking like they don't bend, and and that's not a good match, you know. At the end of the day, if you're trying to like make your last album or go on tour, like they they don't bend, they don't give an inch. It's like the Ali Frazier of hip hop, the two of them. But what have you? What do you feel as somebody who's been working in movies for 25 years, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, and you know, been movies, television. You know, you've gotten a tremendous amount done. Yeah. You've never stopped this forward momentum, yeah. right? Uh, has it? Have you felt at times like a cost to having different aspects of a personal life, or uh, have you felt you had to grab on uh, to, you know, to shut certain things out in order to do this? I feel like that more now as as I've getting a little older. Um, because when I was younger, when my twenties, it was just a breeze. I mean, I didn't. I what do could, you mean? Like, you know, the fact that I had so much success so quickly. And, and look, I was never the biggest star in the world. But like when I did Zebrahead, that was a big deal. And and for me, it was enormous. You know, and and to to do your first job to be starring in in a, in a film that Oliver Stone is producing that wins Sundance. But it never like went to my head. Like I just went from that to the next thing to the next thing. And I was you know with girls and and I wasn't going crazy. It just was like I. There's always been this sort of I can't believe I'm here kind of thing. I still have that to this day. Like I, I, I'm very conscious of of the things that I've accomplished and 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 how much because I didn't plan on doing this. So like I never was like this was my path. Like my path in my head was to be a, a basketball player. You think you were going to play college hoops? Say it again. You thought you were going to play college hoops? I thought I was going to play in the NBA. Right. For real. Like that's what my whole life goal was. So. You know, that I fell into something that came way more natural than basketball, acting. Like, the first time I ever auditioned for anything, the first time I read Sides, I was like, it was like, 
it was the most comfortable thing I'd ever done. Like it came more natural than any basketball I ever picked up, every any sport, any any girl I'd ever talked to, any anything. Like I had been doing stand up comedy at the time, which right. was fun, but I wasn't great at it. And I didn't really have a real passion for it. I had a passion for making people laugh, but not the craft of stand up. You have to work so hard to Yeah. And and I didn't even I was just doing it. Like I was just nineteen and just doing it. But when I the first time I read sides for 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 a for a, 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 a an audition, you know, that the sides is the script. The first time I read a script for an audition, I was like, I can do this. Like, I knew this is what I was going to do. Like, it was just like, and, I, and that was it. From that moment forward, you were like, uh, whatever I have to do to do this thing, I'm doing it. There was no question in my mind that I wasn't not going to do it once I started doing it. Had you acted in high never, school at all? Never acted. What was the first audition? The first audition that I did was a show that Chris Albrack, who, who basically built HBO, what we know now, he was doing a show that was, he was developing, first of all, he told me, I'm going to change cable. I remember him saying that to me. And it was a show about, it was basically like Zebrahead, but a show. And it was a show about this white kid and this black kid who were best friends and they loved playing ball. It was very close and they loved hip hop. Did Albrecht know you because he. No, I was from, no, from the comedy. Because, you know, uh, early on he was in the comedy world. How did you get the audition? Did he see me doing comedy? He might have seen me doing comedy or his casting director. Right. I mean, I wasn't even like a, a, a comic. I was like, you know, I get paid $75 and I wasn't like, they just saw me. They One night they saw me doing it. Like, come like, audition. Come in audition. And then when I did it, I was like, there's no fucking way I'm not getting this part. And I got the part and they never did the show. And I auditioned with like Martin Lawrence and Dwayne Martin. And I mean, and I was like, like there was, and, and then, and then that didn't happen, but I knew like I'm doing this. And then a year later, the same um, a casting director who had worked on that had called me in for Zebrahead. And, and I came in late in the game somehow. Like, they had already cast, actually, pretty much. And he's still resentful of it, although he's had a fucking fantastic career. Adrian Brody. He won a fucking Oscar, and I think he's still this day. Fucking Rappaport got he, Zebrahead. No, because he got, you know, he, he had over and over. I would love to talk to Adrian here, because he was so great for so long before it was recognized. You could Absolutely. see the chip. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. Burned. Yeah, you know? yeah. So then you got it over him. And I, I got over him, and it was like Rory Cochran, and I'm not saying this like I'm shitting on them, because it's 20 years ago, because those guys are both great. But at the time, like, growing up in New York, the way I had grown up, I mean, this is the difference, the reason why I got it. Like, I went to school around the corner. I graduated from Martin Luther King. I used to play it, ball there every Monday night at nine o'clock. Right, with have, Russell and Chris Lighty. This that whole was, yeah, run. I, after I left Martin Luther King, I've never been back. Like right. I had once once they let me out, like I was gone. But I went to Martin Luther King High School, and and Adrian went to LaGuardia. And once I found out he went to LaGuardia, I was, there's no fucking way you're getting this shit. Like it's like like the, my right, whole. It's a couple blocks away, and like those they, kids are the privileged. Those they, are those are the actor kids. But that they they're let only privileged. I want to say they're only privileged because they earned that. They, yeah, they got earned themselves it. into yeah, that I mean, place. Martin Luther King was like a fucking. It was literally like a, like a, like a hop skipping away from Rikers. Like they they changed. <laughs> this is a fact. And, and again, I'm not saying this in a disrespect because I love Adrian. I respect the shit Me out of too. him. Me too. He's the, one he, of the great actors of our time. He's excellent. But you know, the, but at the time with Zebra, like they they would let out the kids from LaGuardia earlier because the kids from Martin Luther King were mugging them and beating the shit out of them. So that, and that that time change still exists. Would this you day. tap into that? So you would tap into this competitive thing. That's all I had. Right. Was competitive and it was sports and it was hip hop and it was street shit. Like in my head, it was like it was like a fight. So when I went into the audition, it was like like this was literally. My father would still tell me because you would call me up like you were fighting. Fuck these fucking guys. I'm going for this fucking audition. Like I was like this. Like it was like fuck these motherfuckers. You know what's great is that when you did Simmons podcast, which people should go back and listen to the BS report, he said, uh, "Well, we got to put the language warning and let it go," which oh, we're going to have to do the shit. same thing. Now we're doing it too. It's, it's so liberating. Depra- listen. 
the, we've done it a few times. You did it for uh, Ellen Barkin and uh, one other one recently. And people are so much happier when the cursing is it's got to be got to be shit. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. Simmons he he did put that warning out. He put it on, but then no, then it was cool. Yeah, it was. So good. I think that's you know we should. So you tapped into this thing, you got it. And did you get tunnel vision then about doing this for your life? Total tunnel vision. Like, once I did it, like, I had nothing but, like, when I was doing Zebrahead, you know, there was a producer. I'll say who that was because I talked about, it was a guy named Jeff Dowd who is supposed to. He's the dude. He's supposedly the dude. But, like, he told me you need to get acting classes during the fucking filming of the movie that he's producing. You need to get acting classes, kid. And I was like, fuck you, man. You don't even know what the, like, the shit that I'm doing is, you don't even know what the fuck I'm doing. Like, in my head, I was like, fuck this motherfucker. Like, that's all I had was a Big mouth and, a, and an attitude. But you knew. I, this is interesting because people never know. People, Most people, if they were shooting a movie, I would say this, 95% of the people, if they were shooting a movie and some producer, some guy in a position of authority said you need acting lessons, they might say, fuck you. But inside, something would be wilting in them. They would feel judged and like that guy was right and they were a fraud. It pushed me further. You never felt like that didn't make you feel like a fraud? Not at all. Why? Why? What just, made you, in your I, life, what do you think you got this sort of like, like, you know, the confidence that you have, that commodity is so great. How, where do you think it, it, it started? It's more from, it more probably from insecurity, but I think it started like... The th- the thing that I had, like, the way I grew up in a nutshell, like, I grew up on the east side of Manhattan. I loved basketball. When I was 12 years old, I, I met two kids playing basketball. My friend Randy Dupree from 139th and 7th and 8th Street, and my friend Gerald Moody, who's from Howard Projects in Brownsville section of Brooklyn. These neighborhoods in the 80s were not even thought about being gentrified, especially Brooklyn. So we would go out there. I was 12 years old. I was already in love with hip-hop. I would go out there and play ball. I mean, we're talking about, you talk about street ball and no blood, no foul. There's no blood, no foul. Where'd you play on the east side? On the, John Jay Park. But I was better than everybody at John Jay Park by the time I was in the fifth grade. There's nobody. It was just, you know, a bunch of Jewish kids. And Jew, you know, Where'd you grow up? What, on side, 77th in New York. Right. That's where I'm from. You know, I don't know why, you know, because the way I speak, my father, you know, has this accent with probably less, you know, f- f- he doesn't curse as much as me, nowhere, and he hates when I curse. But you know, but but growing up in that neighborhood, and then and then you know being exposed to what I was exposed to in Harlem and in Brooklyn, it changed the course of my life. And I was exposed to things, and we, we were just just kids. I was twelve. I used to sleep out in 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 Brooklyn, and and I mean there was killers. There were I mean there was gunshot. It was wild. And I'm from the I'm from a Jewish middle class family on the east side. There'd be like guns. I'd be well, like, I was going to say f- for people who don't know, I mean 77th in York. It's good. It's really good. Yeah. I mean you're you're four blocks away from like the nicest place, yeah. you know, one of the most expensive, yeah. most beautiful places. It's it's more working class back then and it's, there's a lot of tenements like and we we were middle class. But you're exposed but to you, are you know, live, I'm just saying you're living you're not living in the Bronx when the in the fuck no. Of the Bronx. Hell no. Right. I I lived a good life. You know, but but that being around that and and having that sort of you know f- that fuck that attitude. Yeah, somehow you still made yourself feel like it was you against the world or something. Yeah, and and also before that, I mean, I got kicked out of school when I was you know I got kicked out of the third grade public school in the third grade for what? For just being disruptive. It just came to the, the icing on the cake of the suspension. But I was in the third grade. I punched my principal. Now I'm in the third grade. That's an excellent. Listen, at third grade, but to to get kicked out of a public school in the seventies. That's an accomplishment for an eight-year-old. 
That's a big fucking deal. Like, that's like, I got a, there's a statue like, outside like, the by school. By the way, I mean, uh, I think that's what got Mike Tyson sent up to Customato. Exactly. Which, I mean, it's basically. But his punch probably right. hurt. I was right. in the third grade, and I, it was just like a swing. But but I was just really, like, you know, they wanted to put me on drugs. There was no, there was Ritalin and all this stuff. My father was like, no, no, no. But I mean, this is the fact is that. I was going to say, yeah, obviously there was some ADHD going on. But they, oh, yeah. they back then it was like uh, Ritalin, nothing else. And also there was a huge stigma attached to it. Yeah, you, no one knew. Now I'm hopped up on Ritalin, estrogen. I take it all. You know what I mean? But 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 at the time, but I was so bad in school. And and I don't think you take estrogen. No, I don't. No, but I was just throwing. I was trying to see if you were paying attention. I think you take maybe like Adderall. Adderall. No, I don't. I don't take Adderall. What do I take now? Lexapro. Oh, that's good. That gets rid of the anxiety. Yeah, that's good. All right, takes the edge off. But but I got kicked out of the third grade. I went to a different school from the third grade to the twelfth grade. That's how fucking bad I was in the New York City. That's how bad I was. And, and I'm saying bad, like, there was no incidents. You'll say, why did you kick? I got kicked out of Erasmus Hall High School in 86. Yeah. That year, the Daily News did a, a five-day front story, uh, a front-page story on, this is the worst public school in New York City. Erasmus, though, that's not near where you... This is in Brooklyn. At this point, where, I was... That's where Neil Diamond and, and Barbara Streisand And at this point, when I went there, there was a riot the first week of school. A helicopter was, like, landed on the street. That's how fucking bad it was. I mean, and so with all these, but with all these people, like kind of criticize. I know what a kid like that's like. When yeah. all these people were criticizing you, and I'm sure it was like crazy, Mike, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Was it your? Did your dad give you the sense of like, don't listen to these people? Did yeah. he tell you to like? How did you get the like? He quietly did that. He never, he never strayed from me. My my father, my mother didn't either. But my father, I lived mostly with with my father. And then you know when he tired of me, I'd go back to my mom. And then when my mom back, but it was mostly my father, especially through the younger years. And when I got kicked out of the third grade, my father, I just remember like you know he just he didn't he just like comforted me. And, 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 and I always remember that. Like, and he just would tolerate me. He just very patient. Very patient. My brother, too. They dealt with a lot of shit. With the shit they dealt with being around me. Was, yeah, was it easy for... I'm just thinking that uh, you have even in Hollywood carved out this. You have friends and groups you hang with, and I've seen you around a lot. But I wonder if... Uh, I don't know, I wonder if this independent spirit that you have makes you interested in like the whole idea of how people coalesce together. It does. I think I am interested in, 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 in relationships and getting along and, and, and fractured relationships. That was a thing that, that I, I really related to in the Tri movie is the fractured relationship between the two of them. And I related to it viscerally at the time because I was going through my own divorce and I had just had a, a, a relationship with a friend that for 20 years, one of my friends from when I grew up with, that disintegrated, which I don't want to go into no, that. I don't have to get into that. But, but, but I re- and it was painful to watch Tip and, and, and Five sort of miss each other. It was like they and would. Did you think to yourself, "I want to try"? Like, I tried. Try? Right. I'm saying I it made you try. It made me try. Like I want. Like, did you speak to him? Did I mean, just just talk to him? Like that was my whole thing in the beginning. Like, I, like the, some of the the, the stuff that they, it's like me talking to Fife. Did you speak to him or Tip? Like, nah, I don't want to talk to him. No, nah, but you should just tell him. Tell him what you just told me. Why don't you just tell him what you just told me? Fuck that. I'm like, I have it on film. I could send it to him. Fuck that. You know. It's, no, it's really like when you watch that, and it and it relates to something in the Knicks movie that that, and I I. I I, I keep trying to wonder, you know, I, I think about, well, with the Tip thing, what's amazing is that when you then show in the movie, because the whole time the point is Tip's a genius, and you're, you, you allow Fife to hang himself so many times, and you're thinking as you're watching the movie, dude, come on, man, this guy's your ticket, like, just, just get, get on his back and let him carry you up the mountain again, yeah. and just show up when he tells you to show up, but then you show that footage of that incredible, you know, 
the incredible, like one of the great hunks in the history of tribe that that fight just came, didn't even know what it meant, just came out with yeah. it. Yeah. And you realize, no, no, no. To be the greatest he can be, Tip needs this guy too. Absolutely. And the fact that Tip lost that, like, because what you want to say is, Tip, you're so smart. Just get, do what you have to do to make this guy feel okay. You don't have to do this much to make him feel yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I look at what happened with the Knicks. You know, the one thing, and like, I love the movie, and I'll watch it with my son. I have an 18-year-old son who oh, I curse cool. with being a Knicks fan, and like, oh, Jesus. he's away at school, and he'll watch it tomorrow night, and we'll talk on the phone. He better watch on, it. Oh, he'll watch it. <laughs> <me. laughs> Sam will watch it, I promise. Uh, because he's, in, he's up at Harvard in uh, total Celtics territory. Oh, God. So he has to watch that tomorrow okay. night if he doesn't, like nothing else. Oh, and right, and right. he'll call me and we'll talk about cool. it. Cool. Tonight. It's on tonight. I yes. mean, we're doing this Monday night, but yes. it's on today. Tonight. Um, the only thing, though, that I wish there was more of was about what Pearl had to sacrifice. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about it? Because it's something I've been obsessed with for, I'm telling you, since I'm seven, eight years old. Yeah. What Pearl had to do. Can you talk about Because... When you think about, would anybody do that today in a team sport, do what he was willing to do? And talk about what he did. Okay, well, you know, to, just to, to set, set up, I mean, Earl the Pearl Monroe, you know, the character in, in Spike Lee's He Got Game, Jesus Shuttlesworth, there's a great scene in that movie where he says, why did my name Jesus? And Denzel explains, you got that name from Pearl Monroe, because before he was Earl the Pearl Monroe, or at the same time, because I, I think that's the one thing I, that was, I, I think, incorrect from the footage that I got. You know, he was black. He had many nicknames. He, yes. They couldn't figure out. He was so good. They couldn't They couldn't yeah, come up with Kareem, one nickname. In one of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's books, or in Pearl, they tell this incredible story of, of the first time Kareem, when he was Lou Alcindor, saw Pearl play. Yeah. And Pearl in the schoolyard was, he was the greatest. He was the greatest schoolyard player of all time. Probably. And he brought that style into the NBA. You know, there, there's great footage that, you know, we have in the movie where he's doing all that craziness. He's doing like all the stuff like now now they're taking it to a next level the N1 dudes and the street ball but he was doing like Harlem Globetrotter stuff in the NBA during games not during warmups like well, he that's invented what, I mean if you go to he invented the spin move which yeah. sounds like a crazy thing to say but like if you've ever played hoop the move where you're going towards a guy and you then if you're you know you kind of cradle the ball and it's something that like when you're a kid and the stupid ref calls uh, a carry a carry and you're like the pearl does it right uh, but when you whip around to get by him, I mean, nobody ever did that no, before he did Pearl. It. He did it. And he was revered. So I averaged, wanted, what, 28 a game the year before? He averaged 51 in college. 50 points. I don't care if he's playing against guys in wheelchairs. 50 fucking points in college at Salem State. Yeah, Winston-Salem. Win, and then, Winston-Salem. And then he goes to... The Bullets. And he's, he's a rookie of the year. It's the Pearl show. The Bullets love him. The Bullets and the Knicks have a great rivalry. It's Clyde versus Pearl. Clyde says the hardest person I ever had to guard was Earl of Pearl And you had, you had Clyde. And the, the narrative in the country then was, you know, Clyde is a team ball player. He plays within himself, under control. He's, uh, he's the guy you could tell your son to play like. And then on this other side is this wild... Uh, whirling dervish, whirling dervish, a street. You know, people would have said ghetto yeah. ball player. Yeah, and he's and his personality is not. No, no, the, but his style is so crazy, and, and that, he, he looks like Curtis Mayfield. He he was, he was black Jesus straight up. Like he's got the greatest look, and he's he could at his prime. Pearl could jump six inches off the ground. Yeah, he wasn't that quick either, and he couldn't jump. But he was uh, unguardable. Unguardable. And the idea was he was he was a superstar. Superstar. And the Knicks were Clyde's team. Knicks were Clyde's team. And he, he gets traded. He gets traded. First of all, that was, and my producer, Jason, he will tell you, 
he would say, you got to cut the parole shit down. You got to cut the parole shit down. You got to cut the parole shit down. That was a big, I was like, no, I'm not cutting the parole shit down. Because I love his story. I love his, I, I love him like you love him. My favorite ball player of all time. And, and, and his story to me, it's not tragic, but there's a sadness to it because he they, they he had an agent at the time. This is when like your cousin or your brother's cousin could be your agent. His agent was like, "You need to make more money. You need to." So he he stood out. He 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 held out the first uh, few games of the 71-72 season, and another player did it too, which is forgotten about. You know, I pitched to to the, these guys. Maybe me and you could do it together to do when a short when Pearl came to New York to get the whole thing. Me because, you and my guy, we'll do it. Me and Levine, my partner. We'll I would make that love movie. to fucking do it. Let's do just a short because because I feel felt the same way. Because literally, like they were like, you got to cut the pearl shit down. The reason, okay, so let's finish the story and I'll tell you why we yeah, cut yeah. it. Here's what we're gonna do. You're gonna direct it. Dave and I'll produce it. We'll get it made. Let's, let's fucking, fucking do, do it. it. Hey, Dan Silver, and, hold on. Dan Silver listens to this. He listens to every episode of this podcast. Dan, we're making it. We're gonna make the doc when, short. Just when Pearl came to New York. When the Pearl came to New York. Rappaport's directing. Dave and I are going to produce it. We're just making it. We're all making it. We know none of us are making a dollar on it. Right. We get it, but we're doing it. We're doing it. That would be fucking great. Connor, if you're listening. uh, It's a done deal. Libby, we're doing it. So just pencil us in. Figure it out. I don't know when, but it needs to be made. It's going to happen. Don't wiggle out. You don't know when. Soon. I'm down. Soon. We're going to do it. Trust me. I have the the, the the base interview with Earl because I went heavy into Earl. So so he gets traded. No, so he doesn't. So he so him and the owner of the of the of the of the Bullets at that time they have a great relationship. Abe Saperstein. And and you know it felt like uh you know to 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 Bullets fans that he betrayed them. Like he was like he was quitting on the team. He gets traded to the New York Knicks. He talks about pulling over on the side of the road and throwing up. When he was on the way to New York, thing, he says he had to stop a couple of times. Yeah, and 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 he was so sick to his stomach, and I think part of him knew that what he was doing, he was leaving, he was he was never going to make the money that he he made in New York, in the in in Washington, in Baltimore, no matter what. Even scoring thirty three points, it just wasn't that kind of market at the time. Like you had to like Baltimore Bullets, the only people that cared about the NBA, and the the only people that cared about the fucking Bullets were people in Baltimore. It was not like today where. You know, KD is going to make his money. No. Kyrie Irving. I mean, that's weird. Like basketball, because but that's about and you talk about this that basketball wasn't a mainstream sport. It was like closer to what hockey is now. Out it, where because like I could tell you all the guys who played on those teams, like yeah. Wes Unseld and Elvin Hayes. I mean, I know what that yeah. Baltimore team was, but uh, but there, you know, you could go to school and kids really cared about baseball, right? And football, and football, and basketball really wasn't. Something that was other than in New York here it would be, but in a lot of places it didn't matter, and, and it didn't way. matter until that Knicks team won. The first team won, and that, that was, was a huge big deal. You talk about that how it. that changed things when Bradley came, but so Pearl has to sacrifice, uh, and and knows has made the decision, and I I I know him a little bit. I'm, I respect. You never him had so him on the much. show. I will. I've you known, should get him I, on here. I mean, I've spent a lot of time with him yeah. in my life. He's my favorite athlete of all time. Yeah. And I got to know him over yeah. the last. 20 years. He's he's a sweet guy. He's the nicest. And and by the way, we'll tell you though, I think in an unguarded moment and he's talked about it a little bit. He did pay a big price his legacy in a way. Completely. He never averaged 20 points a game any, again. And I wonder if anybody would do it now if the if the the way the media would play them against each other. It took a very special person to say I'm the center of a ball club, I'm the leading scorer in the league. I'm the number one option uh, 
anyone would want me as their scorer, but I will just play team basketball. How, how do you think that they they were able to keep it going? Do you think Clyde helped? I think, think Clyde showed him respect. I think that Clyde showed him respect. I think he showed. I think he showed Clyde they, respect. They were never friends, really. No, they were never friends. And and I don't know if they, you know, if I mean, I'm, obviously, I think they respect. Oh, they they must did, love and respect one another. But they're but, not like they're hanging out right. they, the way you would think. And and I think that you know, DeBusher talked about it. I mean, they, we quote him in the book. Uh, Marv Albert talked about like you know DeBusher, like he thought. This is a disaster, and he said as soon as he met the movie, yeah. he said met Pearl. He goes, he came over, they shook hands, and he goes, he was the sweetest guy. But when you're going at each other the way those teams were rivals, I mean, they were going at it, as you know. Um, and and he sacrificed it. And I think to this day, if you talk to him, he there is a part of him that felt like he was. They were calling him, you know, Benedict Arnold. They you know they booed him in his home city, uh, Baltimore, and and uh, you know, and it was a sacrifice. He won the ring, but even when he won the ring, he you know he he it wasn't his team. No one saw the game. You know, like the, the seventy three right. championship. You know, it was it was on tape delay. New York was sleeping. The paper wasn't even in the papers the next day. You know, one thing that people I, think the Magic Johnson game was the only tape delay game, but it wasn't. They didn't even have a, a videotape of the game. They just re- rediscovered a videotape of the 73 championship game. It was gone. You know, the most iconic basketball game ever, the uh, Wilt Chamberlain scoring 100 points, that's gone it too. may or may not have happened. Nobody nobody knows. Who the nobody, fuck knows? Very few people are still like... And uh, that's why I bring up Bill Russell. Is is he the greatest shit? Yeah, he won. But where's the footage? I'm not going to have the Bill Russell argument with I'm, you. Where's the fucking footage of him being so great? He was playing against my Uncle Murray. But there was my Uncle Murray. But there's something great about it. And, <laughs> and I will say, I got this out of when Simmons did the Julius Irving... Uh, the Julie Serving uh, BS report. He did talk about the fact that you know there was something about these legends and the fact we couldn't see them that regularly. You yeah. know, I'd watch Channel Nine. I go down in my basement where he had this one TV where I could watch no matter what was going on. I would watch whenever the games would be on. Cal Ramsey doing the game, yeah, and it meant the world to me. Yeah, but you would only see those guys so rarely. Yeah, you know, one game would be televised, and so there there is something that was like legendary, and, and the folklore would build it up. It would, and then when someone would deliver like the P- Pearl did, it was weird. You know, in New York, you would have arguments with your best friend about Clyde or Pearl. Right. Someone was Clyde, someone was Pearl. Right. And I do think that somehow, you know, Pearl has been, some people were like, why is he one of the top 50? They don't want to give it up to him. And, right. And I think it's, uh, if he had stayed in Baltimore, he wouldn't have won the championship, but people would understand. And I, and I, I do think that the sacrifice, I can't think of another example, I'm sure people listen and can, but where... A superstar said, I'll take 10 points off my average. Right. Guys give lip service to it. Right. But they don't do it. No, they don't do it. And this whole concept of my team and whose team is, is it, it he, he gave it up. And it's, I think it's more to do with him as a person than Me him too. as a basketball player. And I think it's you know, even more to do with him than it has to do with the rest of the guys. It, like He knew what he was getting himself into, and he did it. And, you know, and it worked out in some ways, and in some ways it didn't. I mean, you do talk about the point in the movie that, that the team was maybe the smartest team just in terms of raw intellect like yeah. ever assembled because Jerry Lucas the second you know the, was a certifiably uh, you know a guy with probably like 150 IQ or right. something Bradley was road scholar yep. genius yep. Clyde is very smart yep. guy and Dick Barnett. Dick Barnett is a super bright guy yeah. um and do you think that somehow those they were able to understand something about the nature of the game because you said a, you said it was street basketball you go there weren't plays but when most people think of street basketball what they think of is 
uh, three guys on one side of the court. It's loaded, you know, the strong side, right. two guys, and then one guy going one on. With Carmelo Anthony is what most right, people right, think right, of, right? right? Or people like me who hate the way Carmelo plays the right, game. Right, right. But that's not the street ball. You're talking about the idealized where guys are just sitting picks and yeah. mo- moving in motion. Basic basketball. And I, I think that the intelligence, you know, yeah, I think it had to do with more so like them understanding what it took to win. Like, you know, like having a, like the ego was in check and, and who they, they were just intelligent people. And like, if I do this, it'll help this. And I think, I don't think it's something that you can... I mean, somehow San Antonio does it, and and as much as I hate the Patriots, they do it. They just, I, I, but you know, Red Holzman, he was a scout for the Knicks. He scouted all those players. Uh, that's a great point about. Can I say something though? That's a great, great point about the Spurs because if you think about what the roots of that team, the great team, I mean, David Robinson and Tim Duncan are really, really smart. Yeah. And had an understanding that was kind of like beyond what most people's understanding. They could even, I'm sure those guys could talk about like what the idealized version of the game is. Absolutely. And so they were able to buy in because like the, one of the hardest things that you, for people ever, uh, is um, people have a very hard time with delayed gratification. Uh-huh. Right? We want what we want now. Right. The glory of scoring the basket. Right. Of being, and like, it seems like somehow that team understood like they're going to sacrifice a bunch of stuff. To get this glory down the road, yeah, they they got it, and and uh, you know the the thing about the Spurs, you know, like they there was a great article, I think it was either Grantland or the New York Times, calling these modern day Spurs the cousins of the old Knicks. Makes sense, and and uh, and it totally makes sense. You know that one thing Bradley says, he says it in the film. He's, it's one of his famous things. He says it's the pass before the pass. You know, and, and like, the hockey assist, yeah, and and he and they got off on it, and the fans in New York at the time they got off on it, and they cheered for the pass before the pass. They cheered more for the assist than the guy who made the well, basket. New Yorkers took pride and still do about being the most knowledgeable basketball fans, and if you, and, and I, I think even people who are sort of would like to be skeptical of it know that it is in our uh, blood here. A few questions about you and about your approach to this stuff before I know you have to actually go to the Nick game, but. Uh, you have a few more minutes. Yeah. So, the um, what do you think it is that makes you, uh, you know, you said the thing before about noticing when Tip and Fife had uh, this uneasy meeting. Is it that your receptors, um, ability to observe people, have you always had that thing? Did you develop it as an actor? Do you just sense when you walk into a room? Can you pick up what's going on? I think that most artists in general... And I, and I don't like to use that word artist about myself because it's like I still don't even really consider myself that in some ways. But but I, that's probably the the younger me because that was also part of my, my my attitude. Like, fuck that. I'm not an artist. I'm a something else. I don't know what I thought I was. But I think, you know, most people who, who are in the arts have sensitivity. And, and as crass as I know I can be to everyone who, who knows me and and, and, and is over overbearing and overwhelming as I, I think I could be, I think I do have a sensitivity and and uh and um an able ability to pick up on that at times. And I think as an actor, that's been, you know, you know, as I've gotten older, like, you know, like I've played like some tough guys, but like most of my work when I was younger was to, I got accolades and, and, and sort of singled out for being vulnerable. And and uh, and and that's still the thing. I think that dichotomy is is the, right. Whatever the, that pain was that you were dealing with as a young person, yeah, you built up the exterior, but the fact that we can still see it, yeah. But it, did it? Do you? I guess the question is, 
it's clear that you do pick up on that stuff. Is it conscious or does it just happen? It just happens. It just happens. I mean, I know now as a filmmaker that that's something that I gravitate towards. Since I've done it twice, it, it is the thing that I there's like there's a there's a sensitivity and a vulnerability that that as a director when I've captured it on film, I get the same euphoric thing that I do from acting and, I, and, and in between action and cut when you capture that sort of genuineness and that honesty. That moment when that thing happens and you realize you've, there's been something authentic communicated. Totally. And, and, and uh, something the person didn't know until they spoke it. Yeah. Or couldn't admit to, and you and it crystallized in front of you saying that because that is an incredible moment when yeah. that happens. And as a director, the first time I got it was talking to Fife, the first interview with Fife, and he was so vulnerable. And I remember feeling like this euphoria. I, it's the closest thing I could relate it to, and it's going to sound crazy, is a sexual kind of thing. It's a heightened sort of thing. And as a director, I had never experienced because I never made a movie. But like I'm shooting a TV show now. Last week, I, I was like... Literally, and I told my girl, I was like, yo, it, it, it's like a euphoric thing. And I said, I can't believe that I'm still fortunate enough to be able to feel it. You know, and during action and cut where you're just like, you're in there doing it. And you're like, it, it, you just, it, and, it, and you know, no, when you're doing it with somebody, it's even better. But like when you're just like doing something, because film acting and TV acting is so technical. So yes. you're not really living it with somebody unless it's like a two shot. But no, no, yeah. Uh, well, sometimes you can't even in a one if the person's really there. And yeah. what you're talking about is those moments as a creative person when you're able to be present, completely when it present. flows through you. And sometimes people like that, that. I know what people when people say it. Sometimes it sounds like they're being precious, right? Oh, it flowed through me. I don't know what, what it is. Is all the preparation you've done, all the conscious thought you've done, has set you up so that in the moment you can allow the best. That's the best part of yourself to surface. And people, that's it. It's, it happens. You know, you go to write every day. Uh, hoping for those just those moments of you know what some people call transcendence, but yeah. it's the moment when you touch that thing that made you want to do it in the first exactly. place. Exactly, exactly. Um, it doesn't happen every time. No, but and you can't fake and you can't force it. No, you get proficient at your craft, so right. that you can kind of do your craft um, until those moments occur. But when they do, and you can touch them, for me, it fuels you going. Yeah, for an athlete's, of course, you know, those Knicks still are using what they felt then to go forward. Or, or there are directors you worked with with Quentin and and Woody and Mangold and I mean so many other great directors. What did you n- notice about how they would manage the group dynamic? About how they would relate? About how they would get the best out of you? Um, well, everybody has different style. Like Tony Scott was probably the first director who was like had a, like a, a vocal presence as a leader like you would think he was almost like a a Vince Lombardi like he was like all right guys let's go you know and he would tell people to shut up but it was never in a way that shuts you down like he'd be like everybody shut up but you never felt like oh you never felt scared and for me when I would go to him and like this is when I was trying to find myself as an actor and this is true romance everybody's in this fucking movie I'm shocked that I'm in this movie I'm literally shocked that I'm there like it's everybody's there but I would go to this director who's Tony Scott at this time he had done Top Gun he's a big fucking deal and I would yeah, say Quentin wrote the movie he didn't direct yeah, it yeah yeah but I would go to him and say what do you think about this and he'd be like that's great and I'd go what do you think about this that's no good but keep it coming oh, that's that keep it coming oh, that's great. was was really pushed me to to the second phase of of understanding myself as an actor that that keep it coming because when I did Zebrahead I got you should get acting lessons kid but that keep it coming from Tony Scott on True Romance gave me going okay yeah you're working with all these incredible people yeah. you're in this incredible and situation. he was like listening to me it was like he gave me a form to to and he, you know some of the ideas he liked some of the ideas he didn't like you know as far as the managed people Woody Allen 
it's a, it's the most you, it's like it's it's almost like invisible what he's doing until you're doing it because we would go on set it'd be like six pages of dialogue that I have been practicing for months right and he would say we'd sit around let's read it one time there's no camera we're like we're standing there he'd be sitting there you're not even performing it because I'm like sitting there with Woody Allen like I'm doing like five pages with him and he he go all right so we're gonna do this scene and you know we read it one time literally one time. That's it. No blocking, no nothing. And then he'd say, all right, so this, the first couple lines, say it here, and then maybe walk over there, and then come back over here, and then we'll finish the scene over there. And you do it five or six times, and this is a three months of preparation. Do it three times. I did one scene three times, a great Woody Allen scene, and then he's like, that's it. And I'm like, well, that's it for this shot? No, we got We're it. We're done, right, because he, yeah. The whole thing lasted a half an hour. And, and his taste and his ear for things is just... On a different level. Did you know, like, when you were doing those movies with those great directors, hey, I'm going to do this at some point, I'm going to uh, learn, do you keep a journal, do you write stuff down? I, I used to, I, I, now I, I, I write stuff down more, and when I was younger, I did, there was a period, I photograph a lot, I take photographs on, fo- uh, you know, like, that's yeah. just something I like to do, um, but when I was doing the Woody Allen movies, I wrote stuff down, because I just couldn't believe I was doing it when I did Copland, because I was working with right. De Niro and so on, that was an outer body experience for me, because those two guys were my guys growing up. Sure. You know, and I mean, uh, well, yes, of course. Everybody, everybody. I mean, they're like pillars. So there are moments in that movie that are so great. In Copland, I mean, yeah. I mean, great mo- moments with yeah. you know, the big, whole opening. But I mean, with those two guys, the, yeah. You know, it's in and, and and like that. You know, so you blew it. You yeah, you blew it. You dumb fuck. I mean, yeah. I was there watching that. Like you, I'd go to the set. They'd be like, "What are you doing here?" I'm like, "Fucking Robert De Niro's doing a scene yeah. with Sylvester Sloan." Because you got a way of life out here. I thought I'd check it off my side. I mean, there are great yeah. moments in that movie. All right, I'm going to leave you with. I'm going to tell you. I I, I, I don't. But I'll tell you, I was when uh, Connor called me at one point, who was one of the you know the ESPN exec on, on the movie and on your movie, and I was like, um, you know, you should tell Rapport to talk to me. I should be interviewed because I'm the biggest Nick fan. But um, <laughs> what I would I would have said is I have this one Pearl story, which we can say now we can do in our our thing. Okay. I have this great personal Pearl story. I'm okay. just going to tell it. Give it to me. Which is one night I went to law school at night. I'm in law school at night working full time, and I was working in, in the music business, and I was working with Gary Harris. Oh, shit. I know Gary. I know. We're, he, Gary and I are really good friends for a very long time. Got it. And I, if you know Gary, um, you know that back in the day, uh, Gary could go a couple days without sleeping. Uh-huh. He could, you know, uh, he's a brilliant person. And at times, um, you know, uh, could stay up for a few days right. in a row, having right. a good time and right. just being in the flow and in the mix. He right. signed D'Angelo, discovered D'Angelo. Right. He's, he's in the hip-hop world. Incredible stuff. But he calls me... He, and he knew Pearl's my favorite athlete of all time. And he calls me, I'm studying for finals. And he calls me at 2.30 in the morning. And he goes, want to play ball with Pearl tomorrow? And I said, what do you mean, play ball with Pearl tomorrow? I never, I said, Pearl, it's like 90, 1993 or something. I said, ball with Pearl tomorrow? What do you mean? He goes, pick me, you still got that car? Yeah. Pick me up at, uh, <laughs> pick me up at, you know, 10 o'clock. Um, and we'll go get Pearl at his place and we'll go play hoop. So I'm like, all right, man, I'm going to cancel everything. Like, I'm going to try to move my test, and I'm going to do whatever I have to do to go do this. But you're really going to – Pearl's going to show up. Yes. So I'm so uptight and nervous, freaked out. I'm going to go play with Pearl. And I get Gary, uh, and Gary's, like, actually, like, living out of the office we were working. It was a lot of craziness, but I get him. And uh, one thing, it's like, I never told me a lie, Gary. Always told me the truth, still to this day. And he goes, we're going to go get Pearl. We go get Pearl. And I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. And then I realized, at this great moment where I realized – I could play the worst I ever played in my life or the best. It would look exactly the same to him. Oh, yeah. It's one thing. There's no difference. Absolutely. To me, a giant difference to him, it's exactly the same. Right. And then it was, that was very freeing, right? So we pick him up. 
We'd met once before. We didn't know each other. We start talking, and on the way to go play, I said, listen, Pearl, all I want in life is to say, I got an assist. I got to pass the ball to Earl Monroe, and he scored. I said, if I could just say, I'm in the backcourt, and I gave Earl Monroe an assist, my life will be complete. And Earl's like, great. We're going to do it. It's going to be awesome. We get out there on the court. We walk in. Everyone's freaking out. Some jerk didn't know who Pearl was. and was like, I got next. And the whole gym, it was New York. The whole gym was like, go fuck yourself. That's, That's crazy. Earl Monroe. That's crazy. Like, I was like, but I got you some lawyer douche. I got next. No, you don't, motherfucker. No, you don't have next. That's Earl Monroe. Now you're never playing in yeah, here again. Get out of Leave. Here. So we get on the court. And we come down. And the very first play, Pearl goes underneath. He flips. Gives it to me at the top of the key. I swish the shot. We come down again. I pass the pearl, I cut through, he passes to me. We play like four games in a row. I, I must, every time, you know, when you play a pro, he puts the ball in the perfect spot for you to succeed. The uh-huh. second you're open, uh-huh. you get the ball. We play and play and play, we finish. I'm like, that was incredible. And Pearl looked at me and he goes, you never got the assist, though. That's funny. You never got That's the assist. That's funny. All he did was feed me, That's make so me funny. look good, take That's care crazy. of That's crazy. Yeah. Because he's the pearl. Because he's the pearl. And that's what he did on those Nick teams. Yeah. Just totally sat. He wanted me to have like the greatest time ever. That's so cool. It was the best. That's cool. And listen, that spirit of what the, that Nick team was is captured incredibly beautifully well. I would tell you, I was so jealous when I heard you made the movie. And when I watched the movie, I thought the right guy made it. And uh, thanks for doing it for all the Nick fans. <sighs> oh, man, I appreciate for that. For all the people who've heard about the team and don't know what was so special about it, right? Because it was a long time ago. Yeah. And, uh, I just think that if you're out there listening and you're a sports fan at all, watch When the Garden Was Eden and tell me that you don't get chills and you're not moved by what this group of very disparate individuals were able to do together. And uh, you'll see the little short sometime in the next year. We're going to do that. About when Pearl came to New York. Michael Rappaport, thanks for being oh, here. Oh, man, man, it was a pleasure. Great. It was season. a pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can find me uh, at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. Uh, Rappaport's on there as... Um, I'm Michael Rappaport. And uh, I'm sorry that I ended up talking a little bit like Rappaport. He has an effect (gasps) on everybody. You can't help it. You just slide right into kind of the way he talks. No worries. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on Podcasts.